Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Um, so Hebrews chapter 10, and we will begin to read in verse 19. And the word of the Lord reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Um, 19th century Baptist uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, true religion is supernatural at its beginning, supernatural in its continuance, and supernatural in its close. It is the work of God from first to last. So with that, um, I want to welcome you back to this morning to the third part of our series titled Faith and Hope. Uh, this is a series that's based on the book of Hebrews, and more specifically, the um, uh, the verse Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 1, that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, we actually begin this series by asking the question, what is faith? And uh, the reason why is because most people never stop to ask the question, what is it? Right? Most people never think about what faith actually is or how faith actually works. Most people just assume they know what faith is. The problem is, is we've seen that it isn't true. In fact, the video indicates that very well. Most people around us have a false understanding of what faith is. In fact, most people believe that faith is this blind <clears throat> conviction um, in something that's unbelievable. It's the idea that you want uh, something to be true so badly that you believe in it regardless of what the evidence or what reality tells you. That is how many people define um, and understand faith, which, you know, they say things like, well, you just need to take it on faith, you know, or you just need to have faith. That's why some people say that science and faith are incompatible. Some people will say that science is based on evidence and faith is not. But this is a huge misunderstanding of what faith really is, because faith is so much more than this. Uh, and, and to make things worse, people around us are hostile to faith, right? <clears throat> and, it's, and it's always been that way to some degree. Our world and our culture, they poke fun at people who have faith in Christ. People who live by faith are labeled as silly and juvenile. Some even are called anti-intellectual or backwards, um, naive and downright stupid. People, have, people regarded, they regard those who have faith in the God of the Bible um, as inferior to them because they think that that kind of faith is mere superstition. People of faith are increasingly mocked openly in the public square. And it's not just out there. It's not just the strangers out there. It's not just the elitists in the progressive universities. It's not just Hollywood anymore. It's not some self-important celebrity anymore. It's not just the strangers on TV or Facebook or YouTube that are hostile towards uh, those who have faith in Christ. It's also um, people close to us, people close into our, our lives it's people like our neighbors. Sometimes they're our friends. Some of them are our coworkers. Some of them are our fellow students. Some of them even are our family 
members. And they don't only reject our faith, but they're openly hostile towards our faith. I I have a a daughter who has grown hostile towards faith. That hostility has created tension between us. There's an increasing number of people who who are connected to us in our lives that simply are just unwilling to believe Right? They believe that, that, that faith is this willingness to believe in spite of the evidence, that faith is this unwarranted uh, belief that allows people to hold on to backwards and bigoted ideas. They believe that faith is this magic power that allows us to suspend the nature of reality right, so that we can believe the unbelievable. So we're surrounded by a growing number of people who believe in that definition of faith. But the good thing is, as we discovered in week one, faith is much more tangible than that. Faith is much more real than that. Faith in God is always, always a response, not to myths, not to legends, but to truth and reality. Faith in God is the assurance, the God-given assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not simply a suspension of reality. Faith is, faith is actually a confirmation of reality. It is a confirmation of what truly is true. We have faith in God because God has a proven historical track record of his faithfulness towards mankind. Faith is, is not a belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is actually the natural, logical conclusion that you would come to based on the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness throughout all of human history. Faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. The truth about who he is and the reality about what he has done for us and what he will do for us in the future. And then week two, we talked about um, uh, why we have confidence in this faith, right? And and the reason why we have such such confidence is not because of us. It's because of the object of our faith, right? We, we, the thing that we actually have faith in. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And this is important because Jesus is not just a man. He's not some angel. He's not some created being. Jesus is eternal, he is the Son, He's God the Son, the, the, the eternal God in the flesh. Right? In fact, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Right? As they say in Greek, He is the anthropos, or the God-man. Um, you know, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And, and Christ died on the cross to set us free from our sin. And he rose again historically as a historical fact, proving that he is what he claimed to be and that he can do what he promised to do, which was to set us free from our sins. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he promised to do and then to expect this of him. Our faith is solid because the object of our faith is rock solid. Our, our faith is real because the object of our faith is real. Our faith um, will not fail because the object of our faith will not fail. As we discussed, the world really you know, has a problem with that. Now, they, they don't have a problem with Jesus per se as, as a man. They love Jesus, right? The, the, the man from history. But they really have a problem with the Jesus that we trust in for faith. And the reason that they have a problem with this is, number one, our post-enlightenment world, people just simply re, you know, reject what's miraculous. They just believe that it's scientifically impossible for miracles to happen. Number two, if Jesus is God, then, then his words about him being the only way, then those words are absolute truth, which means the exclusive claim 
of the Christian faith is true, that there is only one way to God, except there's only one way to God, and that is Jesus himself. And number three, if Jesus is God, that means God, you know, that, that means the Bible is his word. And that means his standard of morality is not negotiable. That if Jesus says, love your enemies, that's not really a suggestion. And when Jesus says that, that you need to forgive as you've been forgiven, that's not an option. Right? When Jesus says, take up your cross and, and deny yourself and follow me, he means that. Right? When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, that's a command. When he said marriage is between a man and a woman, he, that's what he meant. When he said he made a male and female, that's exactly the truth. When Jesus said, when you look at someone lustfully, you commit adultery with him in your, in your heart, he was serious about that. If Jesus is God, that means the Bible is true, and then I'm, I'm accountable, right? I'm accountable to the God of that Bible, and then one day I will stand before him, and he will judge me. And if I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I will spend eternity separated from God in hell, no matter what kind of person I think I am, no matter how good I believe I am. And this notion right here of God's moral standard, this really offends people, right? It offends those who are around us. And so they reject Christ because of it. And this is why a growing number of people are, are visibly coming against Christians, even in our country. They're coming politically, financially, and publicly. But, but here's, here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who comes against us because the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, will never fail us. Now today, we're going to change gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about the implications of our faith. What is faith? What, is it, what has it done for us? What does it accomplish for us? What's the result of our faith? And once we kind of get a handle on that, then we're going to talk about what we need to do to, to, in response to that. How do we apply that to our lives? Now, before we completely jump in here, we, we have to go back in history. Right? We, we're going to have to look at the history here because, because this letter was written in a context, right? I mean, there's a historical and cultural context that surrounds the letter to the Hebrews. And if we're going to understand the author's intent and in what he wrote here, then we need to understand the context. And, and, and what was happening in this time period for the, for the Jewish Christians was they were facing persecution from all sides. They were persecuted by the Romans like all other Christians were. But they were also being persecuted by the Jews who rejected the idea that Christ is the Messiah. What that means is they were being persecuted, not just by strangers and not just by the foreign invaders who inhabited their land with them. They were, they were also being uh, persecuted by their countrymen, by their family members, by their friends, by the members of their own communities. There was enormous pressure on these Jewish Christians to either walk away from their faith or at least abandon the most offensive but the most foundational parts of their faith, like Christ being God in the flesh. Right? These Jewish Christians were under pressure from people that they, that they know, right? people that they care about, by their own people. Right? They were being pressured to turn away from their faith. But they were also under pressure culturally because they grew up as Jews. Right? Being a Jew was all they ever knew. Right? It was their life. It was their culture. It was their identity, and they loved it. They loved being Jews. They loved being God's special people. They, they, they loved, you know, being God's chosen people, right? Of all the nations in the world, they loved that special connection that they enjoyed with God. They loved all the stories. They knew them all, you know, Abraham, Moses, 
right? David, they loved the temple. They loved the festivals. They loved the Levitical priesthood system. They loved the fact that they were different from the rest of the world, and it was plain to see they were different. They loved all the symbolism and all the meaning, and it was all they had ever known. And so they were Jewish inside and out. And because that, many of these Jewish people around them would, would actually appeal to those emotions. They would say things, but you're turning your back on Moses, right? You're turning your back on, on the way that God makes atonement for you. You're in essence defiling the, the temple and the sacrifices. They would hear that you're turning your back on all that God has done for you and for your people. You are turning your back on your fathers all the way back to Abraham. These were the things that they would use to try to persuade these Jewish Christians. And so there's tremendous emotional pressure to compromise, a lot of pressure to reject the foundational parts of of the faith that they have in Christ. But Paul, in this letter to the Hebrews, he writes to deal with this pressure. And this letter makes a point to demonstrate that all of these things that the Jews love so much, the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the law, all of those things are fulfilled in Christ. All the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in Christ. All the sacrificial system, all that it symbolized, fulfilled in Christ. All the priesthood duties, all the interceding between God and man, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. And what Paul is telling them is that you're not turning your back on the things that you love, right, when you accept Christ. You're not rejecting those things. Instead, you are embracing the true meaning of all of those things. You are embracing Christ, and you are embracing the fulfillment of all of these things, the culmination of these things, because these things are only but shadows. They're only shadows of a greater reality. And all of these things, from the altar to the cleansing to the blood sacrifice to the priestly duties to the feast of the Passover, right, um, to, to, the, uh, to the garments themselves, all of these things point forward to Jesus. In fact, Jesus even said that his own body was a temple. John chapter 2, we read, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Everything points to Jesus. All that the Jewish life and culture embodied, all those things pointed forward to the Savior, Jesus Christ, especially the temple. The temple, like the tabernacle before it as the Jews wandered the deserts, the temple was enormously important to Jewish life and culture. The temple was the place where God was present with mankind. You see, you have to understand the theology here, right? God originally walked with mankind. God had unbroken fellowship, right? He had an up-close, personal, intimate relationship with Adam and Eve, And before they sinned into the world, they could physically be in the presence of God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that relationship was broken. That closeness was severed. And physically, you know, as well as spiritually, God and men were completely separated. But through the nation of Israel and through this Levitical system of the priesthood and through the the, the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, God and man could at least be a little bit closer. 
It was, it was through the temple that the priests could go and intercede on behalf of mankind before God, that the priests could offer sacrifices to God on the behalf of the Jewish people. Right? It, was, it was at the temple that mankind could literally go closer to the presence of God. It was the foundation of their, their faith. They could point to it. That's where God is. And so to understand the Christian faith and to understand how the Jewish faith was fulfilled in Christ, we need to understand what the temple really was and what it symbolized for them. You see, the Jewish temple was at the heart of their worship and their faith in God. It was at the heart of their very identity. It was the heart of their theology. In fact, the temple itself tells a story, all right? You see, the Jewish temple was, um, uh, when when you look at this model of the temple here on the mount, you will notice the temple has some very distinct, you know, architectural features to it. Very distinct. And you will see the temple building at the center there. And then there's a courtyard immediately in front of it there with the, the steps. And then you would see around the temple and around that court, courtyard is, is, is a high, thick wall. And then outside of that, you see a much larger courtyard. And every one of these features... You know, all these details are architecturally stunning and they're beautiful, but every one of these details are also theological. You see, it is inside the temple where God's presence was supposed to abide. A place inside the temple called the Holy of Holies, seated on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That was where God's presence was supposed to be. That is where, where God lived among men, so to speak. It was the center of It was the focus of of the entire temple complex was where God's presence resided. And what you need to understand is that that big outer court, those big outer courts out there of this temple compound, those were the courtyards of the Gentiles. Everybody was welcome there, okay? Which means the Gentiles could go there too, right? You don't have to be Jewish to get there, right? The Gentiles and the rest of the world were welcome in those courtyards. This is the part of the temple that they were allowed to have access to, but this, this is as close to God in the temple complex as they were allowed to get, though. They couldn't get any closer to God than this outer courtyard. There was a high, thick wall around the, around the uh, that, that, that inside courtyard in a temple that keeps them out. And this is important because this represents the distance between God and the rest of the world. It's this idea that try as you may, you're not going to come into God's presence, right? You may, may be, able, be able to get a sense of where his presence may be. You may be even going to get a sense that he exists, but you're not going to be able to get close to him on your own. No matter how good you are, no matter how nice you are, no matter how many rules you keep, you're not going to get any closer to God than that on your own. There's an imposing barrier between you and God. There's a clear separation between God and man. Now, on the other side of that thick wall, in that front courtyard there, that's the place of the treasury, but that was also called the courtyard of the women. And this courtyard is where Jewish women could come and be a little bit closer to God than the Gentiles. I mean, because they're part of God's chosen people, they could be closer to God than the Gentiles were. But notice there's another separation there, a wall there with a gate that, that, that separates them from the next courtyard that surrounds the temple. And again, the message here is you might be a little bit closer to the Gentiles, but you still cannot come into the presence of God, right? 
No matter how good you are, no matter how Jewish you are, no matter you know, how you take care of your family, and your you are not going to get any closer on your own. There's still a barrier. And then on the other side of the fence, um, there, there are two courtyards. One right on the other side of the fence. The other is surrounding the temple that has a big space in front of the temple. In fact, you can see it better, I think, on this diagram here. This diagram, yep. You see that... Just on the other side of that fence is that blue section there, right? It's the courtyard of Israel. This is where the Jewish men were allowed to come. Okay? And again, they were a little closer. They were God's chosen people. They were circumcised. They, they obeyed the law, right? right? They were allowed in a little bit closer to God. But notice, there's still a barrier keeping them away from his presence, and the message is the same. You can't do enough on your own. Even if you're God's favored nation, you can't come into the presence of God. And then the next courtyard, right, which includes the area just in front of the temple, is the court of the priests. This is where the priests were allowed to go. Right? But they weren't going here just to hang out, you know, and say, oh, we have access to this place, right? They were there to do work. This is where the priests did their work. This is where they worshiped God. This is where the altar was. This is where they daily offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. Right? This is where they performed, you know, uh, the, 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 animal, the, the, the blood sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the free will offerings, all those things. And again, all of this happens and all of these priests are doing this work. And yet they're still not allowed to go in the presence of God. Then you have the temple itself. And not just any Jew, or not just any priest is allowed in the temple. You had to be, you know, to be in the sanctuary, right? You had to be, you know, a high priest. It was the holy place. Only high priests were allowed in there. And again, they performed their work in there. And to get in there, you had to do many rituals and be being ritually clean and follow rules and ordinances, which meant that you could eat only certain things um, before, you know, for, for weeks before, and you could only do certain activities, you know, so many days before, right? Otherwise, you'd be unclean, and you would not be allowed in. You, were, you had to be ritually clean, you know, and to, to, be, to come this close to God. And again, these priests, even though they're allowed a little closer into God, they're still not allowed to come into his presence, even being devoted as a high priest of Israel who is ritually clean, who follows the rules and does everything that God's asking, still cannot come into the presence of God because there's still a separation. You see, there's a, a huge curtain, you know, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was a square room. That's where God's presence was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And everyone was kept out of that space. Right? No one was allowed in. No one was, was, was to come into the presence of God except for one time a year. Once a year, a high priest, a selected high priest by lot, right, would perform a complicated set of purification rituals and cleansing rituals to make sure that, that they were clean, and then they would make a sacrifice for their own sin, and then and only then would they be allowed into the holy place once a year, one day a year, to make atonement by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to make, so they could make atonement for the sins of Israel, all the sins that they had committed the year before, that they would come and make an atonement that one day. Once a year, they made this atonement in the most holy place, and then they had to get out. 
Right? Once a year, these priests were allowed to go in the presence of God, one priest, and then he had to leave. And this was a far cry from the intimate kind of relationship of walking with God that we see in the picture of Genesis. In fact, the high priest, when he went in there, he was going with fear and trembling, right? He would go afraid because because if he was not clean, if he was not pure, if he made a mistake, that he would die. God would kill him. These high priests, when they went back there, they had a rope tied around them when they went in that room. And the reason why they had a rope around them is that if God was displeased and killed them, they would drag your body out because they weren't going to go in there after you. So there's still this separation from God. And all of these details of the architecture of this temple and all these rituals tell a story. And it's a story of our separation from God. It is our inability to restore that relationship. No matter how many bulls are sacrificed, no matter how many sacrifices are made, no matter how we keep the rules, there's still this division. Try as we may, we can't make ourselves good enough in, to be in God's presence. There is this barrier between us and God. Our sin prevents us from having, having contact with his life-giving presence. In fact, sin makes us makes it dangerous to come into his presence. And even those who enter to perform the atonement weren't experiencing intimacy with God. This picture is, is a clear picture of the chasm of sin that, that's between us and the life-saving relationship that God had originally intended for us. And the Jews knew all about this. They understood this. They lived this. And Paul, in this letter to the Hebrews, he helps them to see what Christ on the cross had done right, in light of all of this. In fact, look with me again at the text in, in chapter 10. But we actually need to kind of back up um, just a little bit before verse 19, because, because the first word in verse 19 is the word therefore. And this is an important word because therefore is a connecting word. It, it, it connects what is being said before that word to what is being said after that word. Right? For example, if I walked up to you hurriedly here on Sunday morning, and I looked at you and I said, therefore, I need to go to the store, you would be like, What? are you talking about? I don't know what you mean, right? And you'd be rightly confused because you would not be able to discern the point because you wouldn't know the context of what I'm saying. But if I gave you the context and said, it is communion Sunday and we are out of uh, grape juice, therefore I need to go to the store, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. I get that, right? right? The word therefore is a transition from one idea to the next, right? We're out of juice, therefore I need to go get some from the store. Right? And it's the same with, with, with all of Paul's letters. When he says, therefore, you immediately have to look back and see what he's talking about because these verses connect together. And so we're going to go ahead and start in verse 1 so we don't miss what he's saying here. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, which is exactly what we talked about. The law is a shadow of the reality of Christ. All of the Levitical system is a shadow of Christ. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, these sacrifices they make daily and annually, even the sacrifice of atonement, cannot make anybody perfect, right? 
even though it's offered every year. Otherwise, he says, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. They would be clean. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. They do it every year as a reminder that they got to cover that sin again and again and again. These sacrifices were not the real thing. They were the shadow of the real thing. The sacrifices they offered over and over again were not sufficient to deal with the sin problem. For, because, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's something we just really need to understand. These sacrifices were ineffectual. They only covered sin momentarily. They did not take it away because the system that the Jews loved so much was not the real thing. It was the buildup to the coming of the real thing. It was a shadow. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I will come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the first system, in order to establish the second. Christ came to fulfill the first, so there is no, no longer any need to continue the works of this old system. So he does away with the first system in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the, blood, the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The blood of bulls only provides sanctification once a year. It covers last year's sins, and then next time you sin, you're uncovered. But the body of Christ is a once and for all sacrifice, a once and for everyone sacrifice. There's no more need to continually offer a sacrifice because Christ has already done it. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at this, his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Over and over and over again, they do it. But when Christ had offered for, for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me say that again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What Paul is saying is everything 
about the Levitical system is fulfilled in Christ. The sacrifices, the temple, the atonement, all is fulfilled in Christ, and there's no need to keep working at it. There's no need to keep making these sacrifices. There's no need to try to please God. God, notice me, please, right, based on my own merits. The atonement has been accomplished. You're wiped clean. You're clean before God. By a single offering, he has perfected you for all time. And then he says, therefore, right, there's the word. In light of that, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and the evil consciences from, evil, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now we have to stop right here because there's so much here that we need to, to understand. Paul says in light of this once and for all sacrifice that ended the entire Levitical system, in light of that, not only are we clean, not only are we sanctified, but we have the confidence to enter the holy places. you got to let that sink in for a second. We have the confidence to enter the holy places. You are no longer separated by God from an outer court. You are no longer separated from God <clears throat> from high walls and gates. You're no longer separated from God by a building or, or, um, or even a curtain. You can go right into the holies of holies. You can go right into the most holy place, right into the presence of God. And it says, confidently, understand the change here. There's no complicated rules, no complicated rituals, no complicated purification. As a follower of Christ, you enter into the holy of holies confidently, not fearing and trembling or worrying that God's going to kill you if you make a mistake. It says that we go confidently into the holy of holies. This is a radical change in theology. Why? Because of the nature of the sacrifice that was made. We don't go in there because of the, the blood of bulls and goats. We go because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we can confidently go in his presence. The difference between the sacrifice in Jesus and the sacrifice in the Levitical system is astronomical. We come into the presence of God not because of what we do, or not because we keep the law, not because, because of, of any other reason except the blood of Christ. That's what Christ has done for us, that we can go confidently. And notice what Paul says. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. You have to understand what happened historically the day that Jesus died on the cross. Something happened actually in the temple the moment he died on the cross. In fact, that's, that story is told for us in Matthew chapter 27. We read about Christ's death right um, on the cross beginning in verse 45. He says, now... From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Christ cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them uh, at once ran and, and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let him, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. 
And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, which means he died. And then in verse 51 it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me say that again. The veil, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated man from God was torn in two the moment Jesus died on the cross. And here's the thing you have to understand about this curtain. It's 60 foot long, 30 foot high, and it's an inch thick. And historically, it's been recorded that it took 300 priests to manipulate this thing, to move it around. It was heavy, it was big. It was so big and heavy that it, and so thick that if you actually fell against it, you wouldn't actually fall into the Holy of Holies unintentionally and therefore dying in the presence of God. This, was curtain, this curtain was humongous. And it was this curtain, the moment Christ died, the moment he gave up his life, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Don't miss that detail. Top to bottom. It was not torn from the bottom as if people were finding a seam and they pulled it, you know. It was torn from the top down, which means God himself is the one who tore the curtain. This is huge. The death of Christ on the cross, his once and for all sacrifice for sin, permanently destroyed the barrier between us and God. You have to understand the theology there, okay? For thousands of years, there was this barrier between God and man forever. And once Christ died on the cross, it was gone. That should bring joy to your heart. And there are no more walls, no more fences, no more veil. There's no more barriers. There's no more entering in the presence of God in sheer terror, hoping that you don't make a mistake. Christ destroyed that barrier between us and God to restore us to an intimate relationship with him. And notice what Paul says in verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed from pure, with pure water. In fact, let me just read that whole text again because you have to really kind of like put all these little pieces together. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter by the holy, enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See the, the picture here? Christ is. He's the sacrifice. Christ is the high priest. He is the cleansing water. He is the blood that makes us clean before God. The barrier is completely gone. And Paul says, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. That is the implication of our faith. That is what our faith does us. Our faith draws us near to God. Our faith in Christ is what pulls us in this intimate relationship with God. And this is a radical change. Because for thousands of years, to be present meant that you had to go to a certain geographical location and then do all these prescribed rituals, and then you could only get so close to God. But all of that is gone. All of that is over. 
It has all been fulfilled in Christ. Our entrance in the, in, into the presence of God, our entrance into this deep, intimately life-saving relationship, our entrance into that with God is faith in Jesus Christ. That is it. It is faith in Christ and nothing more. It is no longer about locations. It's no longer about rules and, 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 and rights and sacrifices. It's not about temples anymore. In fact, one of the greatest truths about the Christian faith is we don't have to go anywhere to be in the presence of God. He is already present in us. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? God left the abode of the temple to take up residence inside of you. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, never to leave you, never to forsake you. That was a radical shift in understanding. You don't need to go to where God is. God is already with you. A few years ago, a lady showed up at the church. Um, it was in the middle of the week, and she wanted me to unlock the sanctuary because she wanted to go in there. And with people I don't know, I'm usually like, okay, why? And she's like, well, I just need to be close to God. And, and my heart broke for her, you know, because obviously there's a disconnect. And I told her, I said, uh, ma'am, this is just a building. It's just blocks and concrete. There's nothing in there but carpet and chairs. Um, you don't need to go in there to be near God. You just put your faith and your hope in Christ. You put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you'll be as near to God as you will ever get because he will come to live inside of you. You have an open, up-close, personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But so many of us struggle with this idea. They've struggled with it historically, and they struggle with it today. So many people cannot fathom this freedom that we have in Christ is really that simple. That coming to God's presence is really just that easy. That's why so many people you know, make it so much more complicated. They make faith about Christ about something more like works. Right? They make it about ordinances that you have to follow, endowments that you need to perform, special ceremonies, temple buildings, like in Hawaii and Utah. Some people make it so complicated that you have to have special undergarments that you have to wear. And I'm not joking, it's, it's like really serious for some people. That's how devoted they are to be close to God. They desire it so desperately. So many people believe with all their hearts that you have to earn your right to be in the presence of God. And here's what Paul is saying, is that you can come confidently into the holy of holies, right? Into the very presence of God with nothing more than your faith in Jesus Christ. Because the reason why that's possible, the reason why it only requires faith is because Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. Your salvation, your sanctification, it is all 100% the work of God. Paul tells us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Not because you're faithful. He who promises faithful. We confidently enter the presence of God by our faith, not because we did anything worthy of that. We confidently go into the presence of God because Christ is faithful. 
He's faithful to cover our sins. He's faithful to save us. And in the end, he's faithful to bring us home to the, to the mansion that he's promised, that he's already preparing. It's all Christ. As Spurgeon said, true religion is supernatural at its beginning, supernatural in its continuance, it's supernatural in its close. It is the work of God from first to last. That's why we come to God confidently with nothing more than our faith in Christ. Our faith draws us into his presence. That's the implication. That's what your faith is about. And what do we do with that? Well, Paul gives us the answer. In verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stir one another, one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You have you've been set free in Christ. You have been given an unconditional invitation into his presence anytime you want to be there by your faith in Jesus Christ who paid the price to make that possible for you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is with you. You have an ongoing, regular audience with him. You just speak him. You can talk to God anytime you want to, and he hears your prayers. I want you to understand how big that is, okay? The universe is 96 billion light years across. That's what we can see, okay? It's actually bigger than that. 96 billion light years across. That God is outside of that, created all of that, and yet he hears your prayers. You have the ability to pray, and he hears you. But the world wants to take that away from you. The world wants to discourage you with that. The world wants to keep you from confidently walking to the holy place in the presence of God. The, the world wants to keep you from coming in there before the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and grace for help in the time of need. And more than that, the, the world wants to keep you from spreading that message around. That's why so many people around us are so intolerant and belligerent and hateful towards our faith. And because of that, we need to draw near to God and consider how we need to stir one another up with love and good works. We need each other and not to neglect the meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Christian, you need each other. We desperately need each other. We need to gather together make it a priority in our lives. This gathering together can't be just something that we do once in a while and we have nothing else to do. Right? This can't be the, 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 the thing that, oh, you know, we don't have anything else going, so we might as well go to church. We need to make it a priority. We need to gather together. We need to hear the word. We need to worship God with thanksgiving. And we need to stir each other up. We need to motivate each other. We need to encourage each other to lift each other up. We need to continually remind each other that Jesus paid it all. And we have unlimited, unlimited access to God, the God who created all things through faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to work together to go out into the world and spread that message of hope to everyone out there who is lost. Because our faith in God is a response to truth and reality. And we have, and the object of our faith is none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And we have unlimited access to God anytime, anywhere through that faith that we have in him. 
So let us continually come together and remind each other of that because we need to hear it over and over again. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you um, for this day. I thank you, Lord, for that promise that I can come confidently before you. I don't know what's worse, Lord. The fact that I forget that I can come confidently before you or the, or the fact that there are times um, that I take it for granted, like it's not a big deal. Like, eh, it's just God. Help me, Lord, to be sensitive and my heart be open to the magnitude of this reality that these people lived for years with this separation, this visible, physical separation from you, that their whole religion, their whole life was an indication that I am separated from God. And that suddenly Jesus came and it all changed forever. Help me, Lord God, to be sensitive to that and to be grateful for that. Help us all, Lord God, to walk in that truth that we can come to you anytime we want to with nothing more but our faith in you. Father, help us to walk in that today. Help us all to come in your presence today. Help us all to stand and bask in your glory today. Help us all to come to you in the time of need, when we need grace, when we need mercy, Lord. Help us to come boldly before your throne, Father God. And help us all then to go out into this world and share the hope of Christ with our community and with those that need it so desperately. We love you. Protect those who are not here, Lord God. And Lord God, help us to glorify you in everything we do. We love you and praise you. Christ in your for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.